The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio. It's time now for the Doctor's Lounge Show with Dr. Scott Barber. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber, and I'm coming to you on America's Web Radio. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about seeing the playing field clearly. And I got to thinking about this. Well, I've been thinking about it for a long time, but it really came up uh, the other day. I was talking to somebody uh, very popular, uh, very famous. You guys, almost all of you would know this person. And we were talking about next steps for solving health care. And I got to explaining some of the things that I understand about healthcare and how doctor supply and medical supply is being limited, which is driving up cost and decreasing access and also limiting power, that they didn't understand. And I thought to myself, man, if this person doesn't get it, it's got to be a real mystery uh, to a lot of you. And so I kind of want to step back today and take more of a 30,000 foot view of medicine and just kind of do some bullet points so that we can all understand the playing field. And that's going to help us make decisions about how we address the future. And I know one of these things that's really difficult is, I remember when I was going away to college and I was getting ready actually to graduate from college and my father was kind of making sure that I was understanding that I was getting cut off, that I was a grown up, that uh, there would be no more support coming from my parents because I was a grown person graduating from college. And he gave me one last little admonition saying, don't ever let yourself go one day of your life without medical health insurance because if you get god forbid cancer or you get hit by a truck or something that you could be bankrupted by a single medical issue and so that was really ingrained in my head and i made sure that i always had medical coverage and when i was young you know i had a plan that was basically covered my catastrophic stuff and uh, a lot of the bells and whistles were out of pocket. So I had I had a, a high deductible a catastrophic plan. So, you know, I was doing things, playing sports like rugby. If I got cut or got stitches or something like that, I, I'd have to pay out of pocket. But at least I knew I was covered if something tragic happened. Um, and I know most of you, at least a lot of you, feel the same way that you need to have this medical coverage. And so we do what we're used to doing, which is we want traditional health care. And stepping outside of our traditional health care is outside of our comfort zone. And people don't want to do it, me included. And I have a business that I want to steer into more of a free market decision. And I know that getting buy-in from my employees is difficult because people like to stick with what they know, even though what people think they know about healthcare is no longer true. Things have been changing over the years and I know a lot of people feel like, oh, and I've had other I've had CEOs of hospitals tell me this that, oh, don't worry, I have really good coverage because I have Aetna or I have Humana or I have Blue Cross Blue Shield or the few that we know about. And the reality is that they're really all the same because with the passage of the Affordable Care Act, the government said what you have to cover. So all these insurance plans have to cover all the same stuff. So even if you're a male, you have to have covered, you have to be paying for prenatal care. They have this scam going where people who can afford health insurance have massively high uh, premiums. Uh, 
and then people that are being subsidized for their premiums have massively high deductibles. So they have the card in their pocket, but when they need to go access the system and they have this $10,000 copay, they can't use the system. And so the scam is in place to fleece the people who have the ability to pay and then the people who are being subsidized uh, for their premiums. Uh, they have massive deductibles that ostensibly prevent, prevent them uh, from accessing the healthcare system. And so what we have here is a population of people who believe that they have health care the way it was 30 and 40 years ago, where you had different sorts of plans, that you paid these reasonable premiums and you had these reasonable deductibles and that you got a reasonable uh, good and service for your money. But that is no longer the case anymore. The system is completely corrupted at this point, and one of the things that I want to do is I want to help you guys start to wrap your minds around the fact that we're going to have to change the way we do healthcare in this system. Now, the left is pushing for socialized medicine. They want government control, top-down, uh, best practices, meaning they'll have elites at the top that will decide what your health care is going to be and you're going to have no other options. And we know that that would be catastrophic. We see in the uh, UK that wait times are something like 18 weeks at this point. The UK Institute today were having problems with patients waiting hours and hours and hours in these emergency rooms with these catastrophic uh, illnesses and injuries. And so the elites, the government passed this law. There is no, not going to be any waiting in emergency rooms for a certain amount of time. And the solution to that was ambulances were told, don't come to the hospital yet. Just keep driving around town with the patient so that the clock doesn't start. That's the kind of idiotic decision making that gets made when you're in a top down, uh, one size fits all government run socialized program. We can't have that. We know in Canada, Canada has a system where it is not uh, only a socialized medicine system, but it's illegal to contract outside of the government system. So in the UK and in other places, if you don't like the government-run system, which a lot of people with means don't, they have the ability to go pay cash for private health care, which, by the way, because it's so rare and strangled, the cost of that private health care is, is very high. Now, in Canada, they don't allow you, and it is against the law, to contract outside of the government. And so people there are trapped. You're either going to use the government system or you have to leave the country. And something like 60,000 people a year, last time I checked, was a few years ago, uh, leave Canada every year to seek medical care elsewhere. And we also have talked on this show many times about the... Uh, Back in the uh, at the time of the Ob Obamacare uh, debates before it passed in this country, the premier of Newfoundland, Newfoundland had a heart condition that was not treated in Canada, and he flew to Miami to have his surgery there, and he was confronted by people, uh, media, asking him, you're this big advocate for socialized medicine, and yet when you have... Uh, a heart condition, you get to leave Canada because you're an elite. You fly to Miami and you get top-level medical care there. When he was confronted with this question, he said, well, it's my health and I can do what I want, which is an ultimate let-them-eat-cake moment, you know? Now, one of the things that people don't understand is the healthcare system that we have now. It's not the traditional system that we're used to. We ostensibly have a socialized medicine system in the sense that the government controls the health care that we receive. They're controlling the doctors who administer that care. And I'm going to explain that a little bit uh, as we go on in this. They, they, they set the price. 
And uh, basically, they're controlling the whole system. And so we have basically Medicare, Medicaid, which make the rules. That's a government entity that the insurance companies follow, follow suit. And you ostensibly have hospital systems, uh, the government through Medicare and Medicaid and these insurance companies all in cahoots and big pharma's in there and a lot of the corporate interests are in there against we the people so that we cannot get uh, value for our dollar and we don't even we're losing uh, ultimate control of our healthcare system now we have a lot of these concierge primary care medicine uh, entities popping up all over the country and they're really fabulous they're introducing free market healthcare systems and one of the things that we need to do is we need to marry this primary care uh, fee for service type of system with specialty care and surgery and make that those affordable and honestly uh, the things that I'm learning because I have a surgery center and I'm working on this every day and I see it with my own eyes what the what the issues are uh, that that sort of catastrophic care really does work well with a true insurance system meaning you have a bunch of people pay into a pot and we know that only a few of us are going to have any kind of catastrophic situation like cancer and if you're unlucky enough to get cancer you get the money that we all put in that pot and that covers the costs that go up. But what we have now is this concept where people think if they pay their premiums and health insurance, that that just covers every single office visit, every uh, pill that they take. And that is not what insurance was meant to be. Insurance was meant to cover the catastrophic cause. The rest of it should just be a fee for service, meaning you have a problem, you need a checkup, you pay the doctor a reasonable uh, amount for that visit. Free market competition keeps that price as low as possible. And what happened was corporate interests and government, people who want money and power figured, realized that there was a lot of money in healthcare, and so they've co-opted it. And what I need to do is explain to you how this is being done so that you can start thinking about how to vote and how, and what to demand for uh, in the future so that we can restore our healthcare. Now, I was listening to... One of the things we were just talking about before we went on air today was the fact that I am just really tired of living in a fantasy world. I'm tired of living in the Truman Show where we can't agree on what an apple is. We're getting so conditioned to just see blatant lies on TV, uh, our government officials just lying blatantly. And then we have this media that seems to be connected to our elitist government uh, and trying to support them in their lies. And we know it's not true. And yet somehow we're allowing this to happen. And I have to live in a world where, and listen, this is no endorsement for Donald Trump or anything. It's just our president was indicted and, and brought up on charges. He was impeached for a phone call between the Ukrainian uh, leader Zelensky where he was charged with a quid pro quo, meaning he was charged for saying, I'm not going to release you aid unless you investigate Hunter Biden. Now, he, we re, he, uh, President Trump at the time released the transcript where we could actually read what he said. We saw the phone call and that did not happen. And yet our country went through an entire impeachment process knowing, you know, acting as if we didn't just all read the transcript of the call and know that he didn't say what he said. On the flip side, you have videotape of Joe Biden at the Council on Foreign Relations bragging that he told the uh, leader of 
Ukraine that if you didn't fire the prosecutor within six hours, you're not getting the billion dollars in aid. It's just so ridiculous that it's hard to make decisions in life when you don't have accurate information, and it's getting harder and harder for people to get accurate information. And the reason that I bring these sort of issues up is because healthcare is one of the most powerful tools that a, a state can have in controlling its people and controlling the way we behave. And I think we've seen that over the last two years with COVID. They had a pandemic. The government immediately enacted emergency powers. They've spent almost $15 trillion of money we don't have. It reminds me of that movie, The Samurai, with with um, Tom Cruise. And he's, they're getting ready in this last battle where the samurai are going against the Japanese government and Tom Cruise and the Shogun are kind of having this last conversation. They've been talking about the Battle of Thermopylae, the Spartan 300 who stood against a million Persians at the Battle of Thermopylae. And the Shogun asked Tom Cruise, what happened to the soldiers uh, at Thermopylae? And he looks at him and he says, killed to the last man. And they both smile at each other and they run into battle. Well, when Tom Cruise was explaining to the Shogun about the Battle of Thermopylae, he says 300 Spartans stood for two days against the most powerful army in the world, the Persian army, and they had a million men. And he looks at the Shogun and he says, do you understand this number, a million? And the Shogun says, yes, I understand the number. When you guys are hearing we spent $15 trillion extra of money we don't have on COVID relief, do you understand this number? Because I don't. Wrapping your mind around what $15 trillion is is absolutely unbelievable. And again, we're living in this fantasy world where what we think is is happening isn't happening. And one of the things that's amazing to me is understanding what inflation is, right? Inflation is where the purchasing power, the dollar, goes down. I mean, back in the day, you know, we used to be taught what money is. You know, money represents labor. So, you know, when things first started happening, if you go back and you read Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, and they talk about the idea that, you know, people used to do everything for themselves. They built their own homes. They made their own clothes. They grew their own food and cooked it. And then after a while, somebody decided, hey, I'm really good at building homes. And somebody else is really good at, at uh, butchering up meat. And so they traded. And they traded equal labor because it only made sense to give somebody something else uh, that would save you that time. So if I could give somebody else equal labor for butchering my meat, I could maybe build their house, but I wasn't going to build them a hundred houses for, you know, one cow. There was a relationship there. And over time, it became hard for me to kind of give you an equal number of chickens for you to give me an equal number of shirts and pants. And so what happened was we had things to represent the labor, money, gold, and then eventually notes that represented actual value. Well, over time, we got these central banks that have gotten really good at, and I don't want to get too in the weeds, I want to keep everything at 30,000 feet, but we have to understand you got these central banks that just print money, and when they print money, they decrease the value of the dollar. I mean, you ever understand why, uh, you know, my grandfather used to tell me he used to go to the ice cream store and buy the most expensive ice cream, it cost him 10 cents. You know, now you can't buy anything for 10 cents, you know, the most expensive ice cream costs $10. Why is that? Inflation, over time, they print money so that you have more notes, 
representing less value. And so each one of those notes has less value. And it's gotten to the point now where the people who are leading us, who are printing this money, they either don't care or they're printing so much money and spreading it among their friends that they don't care about the inflation because they're fleecing it off the top. And I would just ask all of you, how many of you, first of all, are aware that we spent about $15 trillion under the guise of COVID relief? Um, where did that money go? Who is in charge of dispensing that? Who's, who's uh, you know, keeping track of where that money went and who's spending it? Are, are, we being, are we sure that they're actually spending it on the things that they're supposed to be spending it from? And the answer is no. No, we know, and we know for a fact that that's not happening. We know for a fact that lots of that money is just being spread around to elitist political friends, and it's under the guise of healthcare. We didn't even really have a debate about that. We were in the middle of a pandemic. They met. The money was passed. Nobody really said anything about it, and it was just done. And they were, I believe, they just got so drunk at how easy this was. They just kept doing it. Uh, and now we have inflation and people are acting like, oh, my God, how did this inflation happen? And I'm like back to this world that we live in. It's not a real world. What do you mean? How did we get here? We just printed 15 trillion dollars that we don't have. And I'm listening to Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, who rarely says anything that's factually true. I mean, it usually takes me under 30 seconds to confirm that she's lying. And that means I'm talking about using the Googles and the search engines that are highly controlled by the left and uh, manipulated the data so that it's really hard to find things, I can still find that they're lying. Now, she said the other day, this is the uh, Putin, Putin price hike, is what she keeps saying, as if people are too dumb to understand that they're trying to say Putin price hike every time they talk about inflation because they want people who don't pay attention to associate this ridiculous inflation with Putin when it has nothing to do with inflation. And here, I'm just going to give you government statistics. In February of 2021, okay, so that was a little over a year ago, inflation was 1.7%, okay? That's when Biden took office, okay? Or February. That's right at the beginning of Biden's term. 1.7%. March 2.6, April 4.2, May of 21, 5%, June of 21, 5.4%. Uh, Putin has still not invaded Ukraine at this point. None of you even knew that that was a potential of happening because this was more, more times during the Afghanistan uh, exit, which was another disaster. In June, it's 5.4%. We get up to September, 5.4%. Uh, October, 6.2%. Uh, November of 21, 6.8%. December of 21, 7%. I'm sorry, has Putin invaded Ukraine yet? No, no. Has nothing to do with that, and yet they just lied to us. And then 8.5% in January of 2022, and yesterday they released the number 8.5%. Folks, we cannot, we cannot continue to live in this fantasy world that does not exist and expect our children to be successful. And that is going to require that we all become engaged and start to pay attention at what is happening around us. And we can't let these leaders get away with saying things like, oh, this is the Putin price hike. Now, the reason we have to talk about this stuff, because healthcare is very much integrated with the way these political elites are trying to control us with these lies, and they're destroying our world. Um, Jen Psaki was asked 
uh, by Peter Ducey of Fox News. What is the proper age to start introducing transgenderism to our children? And this has to do with the, again, we're living in a fantasy world. There's a bill in Florida that just recently got passed, uh, uh, famously associated with Governor Ron DeSantis, that prevents people from talking to our kindergartners through third graders about sexuality of any kind. And of course, people on the left hate this. So they called it the don't say gay bill, even there's no gay anywhere in it. It's a lie. And it's it's like saying the Putin price hikes. Oh, it must be with Putin. Or the don't say gay bill. Oh, they're against gay people. Nothing could be further from the truth. So Peter Ducey asked, what is the age that we should be talking to our children about transgender and sexuality issues? And she didn't want to answer the question, of course, because she wants to continue the narrative that it's a don't say gay bill. And she says, and I quote, Every major medical association agrees that gender-affirming health care for gender-confused youth is a best practice. Now, how many times have I told you guys on this show that breast practices is a term and a, and a concept used to extinguish independent thought and dissenting views in science? I'm living in this world where I'm always told the science is settled, um, you're anti-science for asking questions. Um, you know, what's all that? 97% of scientists agree that man-made, you know, man-made climate change is the major issue of our day. All these things that are just not true, and it's a misuse of medicine and a misuse of science. And unless we start understanding this, uh, we're not going to be able to save our country. And it it really has gotten out of hand. I mean, this stuff is moving at light speed at just how corrupt these people are. Now, I can tell you, I went to go look at some of this stuff on DuckDuckGo. I'll never use Google because it's just, Google has just been so corrupted that they're just, you can't get accurate information off there uh, uh, without really knowing what you're doing uh, because they put so much propaganda on there. And you can also know, Particularly when you're looking at something that's true, it'll be labeled with a bunch of fact checks up at the top. So if you're looking up some issue and you see like five fact checks uh, before you get to anything related to what your original search was, you can almost be assured that the opposite of what the fact check says is the truth. Now, Jen Psaki apparently has no problem saying every major medical association agrees that gender affirming health care. And let me just clear up what that is gender affirming health care giving hormones to prepubescent children and mutilating their genitals that's what they consider gender affirming health care they're very big on the euphemism game these elitists these people that want to control us they don't want to say what it is you're mutilating genitals and you're giving hormone replacement therapy and hormone therapy to prepubescent kids who are disturbed and uh, they're saying that every medical board, every medical board agrees with this. And yet I went to the American College of Pediatricians and they tell me there's not a single long-term study that demonstrates the safety or efficacy of, of uh, puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and surgeries for transgender-believing youth. So I don't understand. She's telling me that every major medical association agrees that gender-affirming health care uh, is a best practice, and yet the American College of Pediatricians is telling me that not a single long-term study demonstrates the safety or efficacy of this stuff. Folks, listen, we've already been through this in the past two years. If you start to try 
and say things as a doctor that go against the medical board orthodoxy or whatever they're saying for that day, uh, you're risking your medical license. And this is ridiculous. We have got to have free and independent thought in medicine and science where you're going to get uh, you're going to get into big trouble. And I'm sorry, I, I just I find it hard to believe that if I was in a room with a hundred people that I know, I can't believe one of them would believe that a kindergartner who thinks they're a girl when they're a, they're biologically a boy and wants to have gender surgery to have their penis cut off. I can't think of anybody who thinks that would be a best practice. Now, am I going to get censored for saying that? Am I now going to get a letter from my medical board that I just said that on a podcast? I mean, people, this is insane. This is absolutely insane. And they do it by creeping, creeping, creeping over my entire life. And things just seem to be moving at light speed where, you know what? We used to tell little lies and the media would kind of call us out and we could kind of make it ambiguous. Now we've gotten to the point where they just say blatantly false things. They go around the world and there's no consequences for doing it. I mean, we just spent uh, just off the top of my head. We had the Jesse Smollett story. Uh, where he uh, apparently was attacked by these MAGA people in Chicago in the middle of the night. False. Kyle Rittenhouse, that he crossed state lines and had a gun and murdered people. False. Uh, Nicholas Sandman, that he, uh, you know, went and got in the face of a Native American. And false. Um, the Hunter Biden laptop story, which you were actually suspended from social media if you posted about that stuff. And, um, now, the New York Times admits, no, the Hunter Biden laptop story is true. Now, listen, the Hunter Biden laptop shows that Joe Biden, the president of the United States, could actually be compromised by China and other places. Who's looking into this? Which media is asking questions about this? And yet, we still have to fight about masks, okay? Now, the way this works, and the reason this is going to get into my concept about healthcare is you've got these boards that are controlling doctors and controlling healthcare, and we're not allowing for any dissent. Now, there's not a single randomized controlled trial. I, I, I still think I can say this without, without being uh, attacked uh, and risking my medical license, but I don't know, uh, that there's not a single randomized controlled uh, trial that shows the efficacy of cloth masks, especially the way we're using them, dirty masks and pulling them down all the time. And yet, there are uh, pr public school systems that are still mandating these masks for children in schools. Now, there have been lawsuits brought against these school boards to try and ban them from being able to mandate masks in school-age children. Now, what's happening, I'm told, from people I know on the inside is these lawyers are going into court and you get these activist judges that hear from the nurse who represents the government, and the and she simply says, the CDC says the masks work. There's no look at the data. There's no discussion of the facts, none of that. It's just she asserts the power of the CDC, and the judge goes, well, there you have it, and that's it. And then what happens is almost always the judge rules that the schools can continue masking the kids, and then what happens is the lawyers will then go to the appellate courts where they appeal the decision, and there I'm told that you get more rational judges that will actually hear it, and that's how in Florida and some of these other places we've actually gotten this law overturned. And the point I'm trying to make is ceding scientific power to these boards that are really unaccountable uh, is not the way to 
to manage our health care. Now, let's just talk 30,000 feet. How did we even get to this position? I mean, health care is just like anything else. It's like buying a house. It's like food. It's like getting clothing. It's a, a needed good and service that we all require. Most things we don't demand that we get for free, okay? I don't demand that I get a house. I mean, there's a lot of crazy people out there that do, but you can't demand that because if you do, if I demand that a house is free, that means we have to compel somebody to make that house and build that house for us. We have to compel somebody to make our clothes. We have to compel somebody to grow our food. That's called slavery, and we don't do that. So the idea that anything is free is ridiculous on its face. So I'm talking to rational people. So healthcare is just like that. There is a fee for service. How do we get the service of medicine and the goods associated with medicine like drugs and braces and and things like that? How do we get these things at a reasonable price? The only way to do it is competition. We've talked about this. There's only two ways to allocate scarce resources. Number one is you can have a rationing body from a government. We call that socialized medicine. Or... We can have a free market system where people compete, and the beauty of a free market is it's a win for the buyer and it's a win for the seller. How do I know that? Because buyer and seller have to agree. And when buyer and seller agree, that is a win-win because nobody is forced to buy something from somebody else. So the free market is the way to go on this, and I'm going to explain to you how your health care is being rationed Uh, When we come back from this break, you're listening to The Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Veteran-owned America's Web Radio endorses and supports Dr. Rich McCormick for Georgia's 6th District, U.S. House of Representatives. As a decorated Marine helicopter pilot, and now an emergency room doctor who served on the front lines against COVID-19, Dr. Rich McCormick has never been afraid of a fight. Whether it's communist China abroad, or the radical left in America, Rich knows the next fight facing America is to stop socialism. He's all in. Vote for Rich McCormick. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. I was just about to get into the 30,000-foot view of what's going on in medicine right now to strangle the supply and, and cause you to have exorbitant health care costs and, and less access to health care. Now... 
back before World War II, healthcare was a fee-for-service type endeavor, meaning you paid for goods and services that you got in healthcare, and people competed, meaning doctors and healthcare providers competed, and prices were what they were supposed to be. Then World War II came along, and listen, please uh, email me if you think I'm missing anything, but I'm really trying to give you guys just a very basic understanding so we can talk more theoretically and out loud about what's going on. So before World War II, fee-for-service, we didn't really have insurance companies the way we think of them today. Then in, um, well, we had insurance companies, but they, they uh, when people had insurance companies, they would deal with their insurance companies. So when a person went to the doctor, the doctor had a bill, that bill was paid, and then people would deal with insurance companies on their own. It was separate from the interaction between the doctor and patient. And patients were free to go and engage anywhere they want. Now, in World War II, uh, FDR put uh, price fixing in in place. So because of World War II, he's, he locked in pricing so people couldn't change their, their prices. Businesses couldn't change their wages for their employees. And so one of the things that they were able to do was to offer health care as a benefit. So they couldn't raise the salary to entice good workers, but they could offer health care as a benefit. And so they started doing that. Then we get to 1965. It was the passage of Medicare and Medicaid. Medicare is government-controlled health care for the elderly, and Medicaid is for the poor, and then SCHIP later on for uh, children. And the concept was people are not against um, – people are generally against socialized medicine – and the proponents of socialized medicine knew this, and so what they wanted to do was chip away at the edges. So they they wanted to get the elderly covered, and of course they had a big propaganda campaign, what do you hate old people, to anybody who opposed it, and they managed to get it through. Listen, they were been trying to get this since the time of FDR. It took all the way to 1965. Uh, uh, in order for them to achieve this. And then same thing with Medicaid. What are you against? Poor people. And so that was kind of like what they call the camel's nose under the tent. They just got it in. And, of course, they had expectations about what Medicare and Medicaid would cost as they were trying to pass. And, of course, those predictions were wildly low. And within a very short period of time, the system was completely uh, out of control in terms of exorbitant costs. And slowly what happened over time is the uh, Medicare and Medicaid gained control of the hospital systems. And so Medicare and Medicaid through CMS, and we see this right now with um, the the uh, head of uh, Dr. Walensky, who's the head of CMS, uh, she basically has the ability to control and set the rules for health care. So the hospital system follow these Medicaid rules and these Medicare rules. I'm in hospital, so I'm part of that. And over, over time, what happened, I'm very simplifying this. Over time, what happened is every year they spent way too much money, and their solution was to reduce reimbursement to providers. And so every year, for many years, Every year, the reimbursement for goods and services to doctors has gotten less and less and less. Now, the cost of providing medicine got more and more and more, like was would happen with any growing business. Uh, but what you saw happen was the reimbursement to doctors uh, kept going down, and it finally got to the point with the passage of the Affordable Care Act that as the prices went down, the insurance companies, who were also in cahoots, 
That's why you only see the few insurance companies that you see, meaning Blue Cross Blue Shield, Aetna, Humana, um, you know, all the all the usual ones. There's only a few of them. They have arrangements that prevent new insurers from coming into the marketplace and competing. Not to mention you have the Affordable Care Act that tells them this is what an insurance policy has to provide. This is how much you can charge for it. And when you lose a certain amount of money, the federal tax base will will pay for those goods and services. So the Medicare and Medicaid decreasing reimbursement to the doctors, the health insurance companies doing the same thing. The doctors have no real way to combat this. They had We had medical boards like I belong to the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, but they don't really do anything. Uh, they, they were probably, the orthopedic surgeons was probably better than most, but they weren't very good at this. And they, with the passage of the Affordable Care Act, total control, they eventually drove doctors out of business. And doctors generally just are not really good business people to begin with because they spend most of their time learning sciences and things like that. And we don't get, we don't really get business education. And I'm always frankly stunned at how little information I got about anything business side of healthcare when I was in medical school. I had no concept of the fact that when I came out of uh, training that I wasn't on somebody's insurance plan. I didn't even know what that meant. Like, I'm a doctor. I have a license. I'm board certified. I graduated at the top of my class. I mean, I'm a good guy. What do you mean I'm not credentialed? Oh, the insurance companies don't want to credential you. What does that even mean? I mean, why am I not credentialed? Why, how does that work? Well, the insurance companies want to control the flow of care. And if you have just every person coming out there uh, as a free enterprise person in healthcare, they lose control. And so you're not able to get credential. And this is one of the problems. So the you've got Medicare and Medicaid, the government controlling healthcare with the hospital system, setting the rules about how healthcare works, what you can and can't do, the medicines that you can prescribe and you know, how much you can bill for an office visit, how much you get reimbursed from surgery. You know, people always tell me, what do you charge uh, for surgery? And I don't know. I submit the claim to Blue Cross Blue Shield. They pay me whatever they think they should pay me. And half the time they come up with crazy reasons like, ah, we didn't like the way you filled out that form, so we're not paying you anything. Or I know we sent you a letter saying you could do the surgery, but after we look at it, we've actually decided we don't think you should have done the surgery, so we're not going to pay you. And I have no recourse. They have a thing called an insurance commissioner, but I can tell you from personal experience, the insurance commissioner usually seems to be kind of working more for the insurance companies than protecting the rights of providers. That's just my own personal experience. Now, what happened is um, you get a doctor, goes to medical school, goes through his residency or her residency, comes out of training, you want to set up shop. Let's say you want to go to Atlanta and start practicing medicine. Well, in order to practice... I have to be uh, licensed by my board, which seems reasonable. But nowadays, it seems like these boards are sort of manipulated by politicians. And I mean, while I was just sitting here, I just had a friend of mine or an acquaintance of mine just sent me a letter that they got from their board saying that uh, they are being investigated. Let me see here. So they got it from their medical board, and it says they're being investigated regarding allegations, making statements regarding masks and vaccines not working. Wow. Wow. Being investigated by the medical board. I just got this text. 
Now, does that seem like something I might have just been talking about, how these medical boards, oh, we just need to make sure the doctors are of good quality? Uh, no, they're controlling how we think and what we say and what we do. We're not even allowed to to render opinions. Do you think anybody else is going to be talking about those two things I just mentioned in that letter? No, nobody wants to talk about that, me included. That's why I'm being very careful. I, I'm just, you know, I'm just saying that happened. That is a fact. And I feel like even if I get attacked, I just stated a fact. This person just got a letter from a medical board. They're being investigated for making statements about masks and vaccines not working. Now, I just told you factually there are no randomized controlled studies saying that cloth masks, the way we're using them, notice how I said the way we're using them, meaning not no cleanliness, there's no standard of what it is. Those don't. Those are, have not been shown clearly in a randomized control style uh, trial to work. That's just a fact. So you've got these doctors. They graduate. They have to be credentialed by their medical board. Seems reasonable. You also have to uh, obtain privileges at a hospital system. Well, I told you that as as time went on, Medicare and Medicaid, because the costs of socialized medicine are so through the roof, they, they every year they would have to decrease reimbursement to doctors. Doctors had no real say in this. The insurance companies would always follow behind what Medicare and Medicaid did. So as those prices went down, the insurance company prices went down. So every year, doctors working in a free market were getting paid less and less to provide their goods and services until they eventually went out of business. Now, when I first started practicing, most doctors were self-employed or, or privately employed. And now... Um, and now the the majority of doctors are employed by hospital systems or by somebody like me. Now, that has significant issues to it. When a doctor comes out, they get credentialed by their medical board. So you have to get your license uh, from, from the board, a central government agency that apparently is in, influenced by outside entities, or at least can be. Uh, that's the way I see that. Um, you have to get credentialed at a hospital. Now, listen. Hospitals, when when they have patients, they want to keep it in network, meaning if a hospital gets a patient and that patient needs to get, let's say, a CT scan, well, they want that person to go to the hospital CT scan where they can make the money. If that person goes to, say, my CT scan, that money goes outside that hospital. So they don't want that. So they're not interested in me. In fact, they're working against me. But yet, in order for me to even be able to practice, I have to get credentialed at a hospital or I can't practice. You understand? You see the catch-22 here? And so what happens as a doctor, you either, you either play ball so that you can work or you stop working. And what this does is it strangles supply. Now, even if you get licensed by your medical board, even when you get credentialed by the hospital system, in order to be able to go out and start practicing, most people in this country are used to using their health insurance. Well, sounds like, oh, let me just go get credentialed by the insurance companies like Aetna and Humana and Blue Cross Blue Shield. That is not easy to do. I am well established. I've been working for a long time. I have a huge pl uh, patient base as this stuff got bigger and bigger. And I've been working for years to get on insurance panels and they still limit what I can do. This one, they have these different rules and things like that. Most doctors cannot Become And there are some insurance companies that are not even credentialing new doctors. Now, who even knows that? So you finish your training, you get your license to practice medicine, uh, you get credentialed at a hospital, and now you call up the insurance companies and you say, hey, I'd like to get credentialed under, under your insurance plan. They just say, no, we're not credentialing any new doctors. What do you do? 
Well, your only option is to either go get employed by the hospital or some other entity like me. I'm already established, so I can hire doctors. Now, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is that that person is controlled by me. I will usually give them a non-compete, meaning you can work with me, and if you decide to leave, it's a free country. You just can't work around here. Okay, so that's what we call a non-compete. Well, what happens is you go and you learn medicine, you get experience, you build your own popularity and patient base, your own ideas. You want to open your own practice and you say, hey, it was great working with you. I now want to go do my own thing. And it's like, okay, but you have a non-compete with me. Same thing if you work at the hospital. They usually have a non-compete. And so you're trapped unless you're really adamant about wanting to go you know, out in the out in the boonies to, to practice or you're willing to uh, engage litigation to fight the validity of this non-compete, you're really stuck as a doctor. And the consequence of that is we strangle the supply of healthcare. And when we strangle the supply of doctors out there, patients have fewer choices and there's less ability for a free market to drive down the cost. And let me just tell you, um, I bought a CT scan. I own one. It cost me money to get it. I do CT scans and I have to use a free market analysis. I have a person that I need to run it. I have scheduling. I have overhead. I have electricity. I have square footage in my office, meaning I have real estate that I have to pay for in the form of rent. All of that goes into developing what my cost is. And you ask me, how much would I charge for a CT scan? And my answer is, as much as I could get. That's what a free market is. I will pay. I mean, I will charge as much as I can get to keep my CT scan filled. Now, there are two things that two major issues that kind of affect that. Number one, there's there's always a maximum cost, meaning there's always a price limit where nobody's going to get it. For example, no matter how thirsty you are, if I give you this water and I tell you it's five hundred dollars, you're not going to pay five hundred dollars for that water. I mean, you'd you'd really have to be dying. Uh, But most people would just be like, yeah, I'll wait. That's too too high, but. In the end, the thing that drives down the cost to what it should be is free market competition. And the reason is, I have this CT scan, I've got labor, I've got real estate, I've got electricity, I've got maintenance on the CT scan, I have to pay for the initial cost of it and installation and all that. So I have costs, I need to render a price that will make me profitable, otherwise I go out of business. Now, how do I do that? Well, if there's no competition, I just charge the highest number I can get that people still pay. That's how I said it. But if another person comes into the marketplace, then they start figuring out ways to lower those costs. They take better care of the machine. They put it in a smaller room. They, you know, they get efficient employees that will process more patients and they do things that reduce the overall cost of that machine. And as a benefit, patients will get the best possible service for the lowest possible price. That's how free market competition works. But what happens is we have this this situation where the hospitals are in control and you might you can go check this out yourself. Go see what a hospital CT scan costs at a at a hospital. It's usually going to be thousands of dollars. Why? Well, because they hold all the cards. They control everything. If you're a person and you're referring and you're in a hospital system and a patient comes into an emergency room and they refer uh, out, they're going to have to refer to that hospital system. So you can see here how this control of our uh, free market healthcare is affecting affecting the quality of our care, the access to our care, and it also majorly affects the prices. Now, 
there are other things that go in there. There's little laws that, that people don't know about, and I've had to learn these slowly over many years. For example, I've when when the laws were different and before the age of the Affordable Care Act, I was out there building my practice. I was learning my craft. Uh, I was learning how to do a lot of different things. So unlike a lot of doctors, I'm able to treat a lot. I can do hand surgery. I can do joint surgery. A lot of doctors now are specialized. They just do joints. It's hard for them to go build a practice of just joints or just hand because in the community, there's just not enough patients for that. And so... Um, I was living in an age when I could sort of develop all of these skills. I learned about the business of medicine, and I learned the hard way by going bankrupt, by learning that insurance companies have a lot of rules about how they won't pay. And I figured out ways to find uh, cash-paying patients and, uh, and ways to find a clientele for the goods and services that I was offering that made me profitable. But I also learned about a lot of problems along the way. Like there are things called CON laws, like they're called certificate of need. Not every state, but some states. And this is where we have to think in the 30,000 foot view. There are a lot of rules and regulations, both at state levels and at federal levels, that are strangling the supply of healthcare. And we need to start thinking about that if we want to, if we want to free ourselves uh, of, uh, uh, of socialized medicine and get back healthcare freedom. Now, these CON laws basically are called certificate of need laws. So if I was to go out and want to build a surgery center for everything, let's say I wanted to build a surgery center, I wanted to take care of everything, ophthalmology, ENT, orthopedics, plastics, uh, you know, outpatient general surgery like, uh, you know, tonsils and things like that, uh, appendectomies, hernias, appendectomy is not a good one, but hernias, there are certain things that, that com- people will shop, uh, shop the market. I mean, this is obviously more complicated. There's some medicine, you know, you get hit by a car and you break every bone in your body, you're not shopping the market. You got to go to the trauma center. So I'm not saying there are not issues here. I'm just saying there are things that we need to do to get, you know, the vast majority of healthcare back into the free market. And these CON laws strangle supply, meaning if I open this this center, I can't do that. I, as a doctor, I can't do that. The uh, the laws say that in a certificate of need state that the only people that I can operate on in my surgery center are my personal patients. I can't go down to a doctor friend of mine down the street and say, hey, I got this surgery center. It's really great. You ought to bring your plastic surgery patients over. I'll give you a good price, and then I can be profitable. That is against the law in my state and other states too. Not every state is a CON state, but there are CON laws. And you might say, you know, well, what's the reason for that? And to me, the only logical reason is to make it so that hospital systems are uh, maintain the power and control. Now, you know, we already talked about these non-competes, uh, meaning if I employ somebody and they go away and they, you know, they say they want to break up and go start their own practice, I have a non-compete. Hospitals do that too. And young doctors coming out don't understand the playing field. They think that they have a good and service that they can go out and sell and they realize after a while that they're trapped. And so they either have to leave or they just uh, embrace the fact that they're going to be employed physicians working at a hospital system or whatever. And as such, they lose their autonomy, they lose their control, and over time, they lose their ability to critically think. And I think we can see in the last two years how your doctors have been uh, making choices that don't really make sense, even to lay people who are able to just kind of go on WebMD and sort of figure stuff out and wonder, why am I having to go to the doctor 
for a visit, and then I got to go for another visit for my pre-op, and then I got to go here and there, and there's all this bureaucracy involved, and it all has to do with the rules and regulations that are set forth by the government, and it doesn't make sense in a lot of uh, free market situations. And trying to understand all of this stuff is very difficult. As I said, I was talking to somebody that you all know is very prominent, knowledgeable, been in medicine for a long time. They don't know any of this stuff, or not any, but they don't know a lot of this stuff about the credentialing. There's also a thing called continuing medical education where I'm being forced all the time to take these tests that are costly. They give me information that I don't necessarily agree with. I've been practicing. I've been in medicine almost 30 years now. I've been practicing more than 20 years. And I can just tell you, I have my own opinions. I do what I do. I am an expert. I mean, I don't need to go to a textbook. I'm doing this stuff. And I have my own opinions. And I can tell you that there are things in the literature that I wholeheartedly disagree with. Now, I could be wrong about some of that stuff, but my opinion is at least valuable. And that brings me to the next thing is scientific fraud. So, you know, we basically have all of these legal roadblocks that prevent doctors from being able to go out and offer you more supply. The scientific fraud is another one. Now, this is really important to me because in the last two years, when I first caught wind of the fact of major medical journals publishing fake studies, um... I I was quite stunned. I I mean, I didn't really understand how that could happen. I started reading about it, and uh, I've learned that there's actually quite an issue with with what we call medical fraud. And um, so... There, there. Are, you, you can go research this, and actually, I'm going to do an entire podcast on this medical fraud and the history of it. But um, the point I'm trying to make is that when I hear about studies, I don't just accept the fact, oh, there's a study that says something, and I just accept whatever that issue is at face value, and I don't offer questions like. Man-made climate change is the most uh, existential threat of our time, and the science is settled. That doesn't work for me. And the reason is because I've been on the inside of science for 30 years now, and I see that science has human beings at it, and there's, there's error. There's human error involved. There's institutional bias involved, and there's flat-out corruption lying for, for money, power, grants, uh, and I've seen it with my own eyes. So that is 100% happening. And it's not just me. We have, an, um, I'm looking at this article, there is Dr. Richard Horton, who is the editor-in-chief of the British Lancet Journal, which is the, I, I would say, is one of the top two medical journals on the planet behind uh, that and the New England Journal of Medicine. We've talked about it several times in this show. But what uh, the Dr. Richard Horton, the editor-in-chief of the British Lancet said publicly was, the case against science is straightforward. The case against science is straightforward. Much of the scientific literature, perhaps half, may be simply untrue. Half untrue. Afflicted by, uh, afflicted by studies with small sample sizes, tiny effects, invalid um, exploratory analysis. So these are the institutional biases meaning it's just bias because it's hard it's hard to get accurate information meaning people are not overtly corrupt here this is just the bias that is intrinsic in scientific study um 
Then he says there are also flagrant conflicts of interest. So when I was going through my medical training, we used to have journal clubs all the time in medical school and residency, and we would discuss journals. We would read journal articles, and then we would sit down in a table or, you know, we'd get together, and everybody would talk about the journal articles, and we'd talk about the strengths and weaknesses of that article, the level of evidence that they have, the amount of bias that they had. And one of the number one things we used to talk about was who funded the study. Now, in orthopedics, there's a big thing you guys have, may have heard about chondroitin sulfate, you know, that's the stuff for the joints and it makes your cartilage healthy. And at the time that I was finishing my training, this con- glucosamine and chondroitin was very popular. Today, it still is. And we were instructed, this was on my board exam, we were instructed by the American Board of Orthopedic Surgeons that we were not allowed, or we were, I don't know what the phraseology they said, I mean, not allowed, but it was not the position of the board to say that chondroitin sulfate and, and uh, glucosamine were effective at restoring cartilage. And the reason was they had 32 studies at the time, or 33 studies, and they were all, all but one of them was funded by the companies that produce glucosamine and chondroitin. Okay, They recognized that the bias of the people funding the study was so great that they discounted them. You understand what I'm saying? So, for example, when we're looking at studies today about, oh, I don't know, masks, vaccines, who's funding that used to be a big deal. And now it doesn't seem to be anymore. We don't talk about this. And here you get the British Lancet Journal editor-in-chief. So, you know, one of the top two journals on planet Earth, medical journals. He's the editor-in-chief. He's saying that the case against science is straightforward. Much of the uh, scientific literature, perhaps half, may be simply untrue. Man, that is powerful. I didn't, I mean, even I wasn't saying that. Um, So these flagrant conflicts of interest together with an obsession for pursuing fashionable trends, so something gets, uh, you know, popular in the media, um, say getting vaccinated. I shouldn't say that because I don't want to get in trouble. But you know what I'm saying. Uh, Fashionable trends, meaning something gets excited. I'm trying to think of something that gets fashionable, like these Botox. That would be something. Botox was very popular. Not that it doesn't work. It's just when it gets so popular, it it affects the way people think about it, and it can affect the science. Um, And then uh, science has taken a turn towards darkness. So I apologize for butchering that concept. But basically... Richard Horton, the editor-in-chief for the British Lancet, basically saying that scientific literature, perhaps half, may be simply untrue. It's get, there's more. Um, we looked at Marcia Engel, former editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, she said, it's simply no longer possible to believe much of the clinical research that is published or to rely on the judgment of trusted physicians or authoritative medical guidelines. I take no pleasure in this conclusion, which I reached slowly and reluctantly over my two decades as editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine. Listen, folks, I'm not saying we shouldn't do science. That's not what I'm saying at all. And I know people out there who don't like me will say, oh, he's anti-science, because anytime we ask questions about vaccines, about climate change, uh, we're always told we're anti, okay? That is not true. What I'm saying is that science is not perfect and that the science is never settled and that we should always be open-minded and you need your doctors to have a clear voice and they need to have an independent voice and they need to be able to think out loud and they may be able to say things that are untrue, okay? 
we're not moving in that direction and we need to think about how we preserve medical freedom in this country. I'm going to pick up more on this next time. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on the Doctor's Lounge. I hope this show is informative to you and we'll catch you next time. You're listening to me on America's Web Radio. Have a great day. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.